This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Case Files is an award-winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, this is a special day for all of us because this day is your birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. I'm happy to be with you on your birthday. Well, you know, it's funny. As as you get older, you don't see your birthday. I don't see my birthday as being a very special day. It's just another notch towards the end, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I'm depressed. (laughs) A step closer. Is this what happens after 50? Because I'm I'm not signing up for this after 50. (laughs) Am I going to feel like this in a couple of years? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I know at least I'm very thankful I've made it this far and and I'm feeling good. (laughs) But at the same time, it's like, wow, am I really this old? (laughs) How old are you? Should I ask how old are you? I am turning, well, I guess I have turned uh, 55. (gasps) I can only hope to make it to 55. I think that's wonderful. My mom just turned 79 a couple months ago. Oh, wow. And I always say, gosh, do you you ever fib about your age? And she always says, hell no. Why would I do that? Do you know how many people don't make it to this age? I'm happy at every birthday. And I think that's a great philosophy. So I need you to buck up and be... (laughs) I'm appreciative. I think I could probably learn something from your mom, that's for sure. Well, think how much more you're going to be able to accomplish. I think you're just getting started, frankly. How's that for a pep talk? Let's hope there's something else uh, down the pipe. I'll I'll give you that. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) You all should just skip this part. Skip ahead. (laughs) Get right to the case. I have a huge amount of faith in both of us. There's a lot ahead for us. So I want you to have a wonderful birthday. Thank you. I want you to eat all the sugar and carbohydrates that you'll allow Mm -hmm. and maybe go to the gym. Maybe not. It's your choice. 
and go have a nice walk with Cora and enjoy it today. All right. Well, thank you very much. And you you have a, a case for me? <laughs> You're so ready to move on. <laughs> Let's stop talking about my age. Yes, I do have a case about another charming, handsome man, just like yourself, because it's your birthday, I'm going to say all that. Oh, stop it. But this guy was a, was a serial killer, a French serial killer, no less. So this is a case I think that you'll find really interesting, less a whodunit and more of a the reaction that this man garnered at the beginning of the 20th century, which will remind you a lot of what happens today with true crime. I've said a gazillion times, people have heard me say that true crime has been popular forever. And this is a really good example of that. And I think there's some interesting profiling and some really great historical context to go into here. So for your birthday, I present to you the case of the real life Bluebeard, the man who murdered many women and almost got away with it. All right, well, lay it on me. Okay, let's set the scene. So I'm going to take you back in time to World War I France. Are you a fan of that time period? I love World War I more than World War II, actually. No, you know, I, of course, had U.S. history as a kid growing up. And more recently, I've been paying attention probably to this era just because of current events and some of the other types of relationships and international type of politics going on, which I'm finding out, well, this goes way back, yeah. <laughs> you know, all these feelings. So I've gotten a little bit more aware of this time period of World War One, And, you know, I, quite frankly, I had to go, well, how, how exactly did World War One start? Right. I really couldn't remember. I've become a little bit more aware, but most certainly I am relatively naive to the time period. Well, you will be just slightly less naive by the end of this episode about World War I. I don't often in our episodes talk about folklore and fables and tales, but to explain the nickname that this man got, which was Bluebeard, I have to explain a little bit about the folklore behind it. There are a lot of different explanations of who Bluebeard, the fictional character, was. But kind of the most common one is, in the popular version of this story, Bluebeard is a wealthy widower with blue hair on his face, which I've never seen before. Uh, Would that be a condition or something? Blue hair on your face. I've never heard of that. Okay. You know, maybe it's, it's just sort of a level of gray. It could be. That would kind of have a bluish tint. It could be. <laughs> so he was married six times and he married wife number seven. He moves her into his castle. And before he leaves on a trip, he gives keys to every room in the building except for one. She cannot go into that particular room under any circumstances. It's forbidden. That's a red flag. Not only is it a red flag, it's a great way to get somebody to want to get into that room, which is what this, in the fable, the wife wanted to do. Sure. So he has forbidden her to go in. She goes in and is shocked to find, you will not be surprised, his six previous wives, all dead, all stacked up in this room. And when Bluebeard returns home, he sees what happens. He's about to murder her when her siblings intervene and he is killed. And bride number seven escapes the fate of the previous wives. So this is a folktale that started in France. I have heard about this man whose name was, okay, everybody who speaks French, please forgive me. I really am going to do the best I can here. His name was Henri Landru. And I have actually read about him many, many times. I thought he'd make a great book, and probably someone has written a book about him. But Henri Landru is what people had said at the beginning of the 20th century was Bluebeard, essentially, because it's sort of similar conditions. He is nicknamed the Bluebeard of Gone Bay, and we'll talk a little bit about that area in a minute. So he lives in Paris. He has a wife and four children, and he has a military background. This is early 1910s. Much of this case is 1915 to 1920, which is in the era of World War I. Landru says he's an inventor, like many grifters. He is not actually an inventor. He did patent a motorcycle at some point, but it never made it to market. What he was gifted at was stealing money from investors, 
which feels very much like the roaring 20s in the United States where investors were throwing money at every stupid idea you could think of. So he is ripping off all sorts of investors and he has made off with the money and he has left his wife and his four children behind. Okay, so he's a con man. Right. This is not a story of a the unexpected killer. This is the story of a man who seems to have been bad and made some bad decisions from the beginning. So I think we see an acceleration in the kinds of crimes that he's committing. And I'm assuming this is no surprise to you that many times the killers that you've investigated have started with much smaller, seemingly innocuous crimes. Not that stealing money is innocuous, but compared to murder. No, that that is, in fact, very true. And, you know, just bringing up Joe D'Angelo, mm-hmm. you know, the Golden State Killer, you take a look at the types of crimes he was doing, you know, as he's starting out as a serial rapist. And he is committing a ton of financially motivated burglaries. In fact, when he is arrested for shoplifting the dog repellent and hammer that cost him his law enforcement career, when Auburn PD went into his house, they found all sorts of stolen commercial tools, some still in their original packaging. So here you see somebody who is a fantasy-motivated, sexually-motivated serial predator, but he's also committing financially-motivated crimes. Right. We see this constantly with criminals. And it's a red flag for certain things, but certainly with Henri, this was a a big red flag. He's left his wife and children because he was going to serve multiple stints in prison for swindling and abuse of confidence, which is what they would call ripping off investors. And he was in and out of prison constantly. But in 1914, when he defrauded investors, he got his most severe criminal charges, which were four years of hard labor and exile in France, which would have been absolutely terrible. But he never had to serve that sentence thanks to World War One, And this was very common. You know, you have people go through the court system. And when the war breaks out, kind of all hell breaks loose and people are just lost. Either they had, you know, gotten out one way or the other, or they were released or they were expected to enlist. And Henri essentially disappeared. He stayed in the greater Paris area where he lived, of course, under different fake names. You've heard me say many, many times, it's very easy when there's no identification system to evade authorities. And frankly, thanks to World War I, the authorities were not particularly interested in finding a grifter who had stolen not a huge amount of money from investors. So this is someone who was able to take advantage of world events around them to, you know, get out of of being in prison. He got away with it. He is now out and about and possibly planning his next mode of crimes, whatever that is going to be. And I would have thought what we're about to talk about next would have been financially motivated, but not when you hear a little bit more about his victims. So I'll be interested in hearing what you think about his motive. This is another example of the time period really influencing who becomes Henri's victims. World War I, many men are gone, they're fighting, or they've died at this point in the war. There are a lot of widows, and Henri is able to take advantage of this. A particularly unattractive man is now attracting a lot of women simply because the war has taken away many of the eligible bachelors. And this is how he started attracting women who would become his victims. So that's some historical context. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, now is he taking advantage? Okay, so you said that there is a a lack of men due to the war. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine the culture back then is that the women weren't necessarily the ones making money. So are they looking at him not necessarily for a partnership, a life partner type of uh, relationship, but really for that financial security because their spouses are off fighting the war. Maybe the money isn't flowing in. And so here's somebody who I'm sure is talking the talk. He's a con man. I'm sure he's saying, I've got money or I can get money. I've got this great idea. And they're basically going, okay. I think it is a matter of survival for a lot of these women. And what's interesting is he selects women, you're right, who don't have a lot of money. They come from working class backgrounds. Their husbands are gone. So that's where, as we get deeper into this, the question of motive really does pop up for me. Let me tell you about his first victim. It was a woman named Jeanne Couchet. She was 39 years old, widow. She was a seamstress, and she had a 17-year-old son named Andre. 
And she was looking for a new husband. She needed stability. She had a lot of male suitors come and go because she was quite pretty. But finally, she got engaged to Henri, even though, of course, he was going by this alias. Couchet eventually figured out that Henri's identity was false. And still, they had this on-again, off-again relationship. And eventually, Couchet and her teenage son moved to north-central France to live with Henri, which I just don't understand. On-again, off-again relationship. I don't know if he was charming or she just really needed that stability and didn't want to let go, but this is eventually a fatal decision for her. So what do you think about that, that push and pull leading to something really bad about to happen here? Well, he, Henri, is not, you know, oftentimes when you see these con men who are going through women in relationships, they're attracted to these women because these women have financial assets. And so they're trying to con these women for financial gain. And that's what I would have expected with Henri considering his past crimes. But here he is with this woman who doesn't have the financial assets. Right. And he's got to recognize that. And he's portraying himself in all likelihood as somebody who does. So it sounds like he's luring her. Now, for what purpose? I kind of am guessing, but I'm interested to know what happened next with her. Couchet and her son move in with Henri. And in 1915, they vanish. Couchet and her son vanished without a trace. We have no idea what happened to them. Their bodies have never been found. Their families never heard from them again. And the only reason we are suspicious of the two of them is because of what happens next with Henri, because they are gone. There's no evidence of bodies. There's no evidence of what happened to them. Now, there is a French journalist named Louis Tomlinson, and he's written a lot about this case. And he thinks that Couchet began to blackmail Henri because she realized what he was doing. And this is an excellent motive for murder when you are trying to blackmail someone who you don't know has the ability to be violent. And this journalist thinks that's what happened to Couchet and her son. He got fed up when he was being blackmailed and he killed them. And then we start on many, many murders after that. Okay. Yeah. And I would say, you know, without knowing what the journalist has to support the blackmail theory, a lot of how I would be looking at what happens to Couchet and her son is going to be somewhat predicated on what happens to his next victims, because that gives insight into what possibly he did in the past. I agree. Later on, hindsight, the police would say it's clear that Henri was responsible for killing Couchet and her son, and these were likely his first two victims. It's also believed that this was the beginning of the catalyst for what caused all of these murders. And what I'm wondering about that, and this is what the journalist thinks too, is when a killer is not a killer before, then he has his first kill or two, and he has gotten away with it and effectively hidden the bodies. Is that what encourages him to continue or is there something that might scare someone off, even if they have gotten away with it? I mean, I just wonder what the line is where somebody is emboldened to continue to do this. They find out they enjoy it or can get away with it. Yeah, it cuts both ways. And I've seen that, you know, and this is where, you know, there are offenders who do get up to a point of homicide and they recognize this is something that they do like doing. And it may be they enjoy the actual power control playing God with the victim. They're the ones who decide when the victim lives or dies. There's also, of course, the sexually motivated aspect. However, there's also the offenders that will kill and then never kill again. And this is what we are seeing as as some of these unsolved cases have been solved uh, using the genealogy tool. We're seeing these one-off offenders where before these cases are solved, if I'm looking at the circumstances, what was done to the victim, it looks like there's fantasy. There looks like there's, it's a sexually motivated crime going, this appears to be a serial predator. And then when the case is solved, oftentimes it's the one-off offender. And then why? Well, they may fantasize, they do it, and they either don't get out of the crime what they thought they would in terms hmm. of how you know satisfying committing the crime was, 
or they are living with such paranoia that they are going to get caught at some point down the road. They go, I can't do that again. You know, there's so many different factors. You know, this post-offense behavior is huge. And so with with Henri, at least with what you have told me, is, you know, he, he kills this woman and her son. At least that's what law enforcement suspects. But it sounds like he continues to kill. And so based on what he does to his subsequent victims will inform me a little bit more about, well, how did he perceive Cochet and, and Andre, her son, as victims? Was this just a an elimination homicide or was this his trial run because he was already wanting to go that direction? What I think is interesting is when I've gone through the list of the checklist of psychopathy and how someone is diagnosed with psychopathy, one of the check marks next to it is, is this someone who has been able to commit crimes in multiple categories, an arsonist, Mm -hmm. theft, and so far he's killing without remorse that we think. We are suspecting that these two people who were last seen with him have disappeared, and because of what we know about him, that it was not a good outcome. They didn't just disappear and start a new life somewhere. So let me tell you what he did, because this is something that I have read about throughout history. He was a very innovative person to try to bring victims directly to him. He preyed on people, according to the police, using matrimonial agencies on trams, on buses, on metro trains, and parks, and apartments, and houses he rented, everywhere. So he hit on women everywhere and tried to draw them to him. But this this idea of the matrimonial agencies where they're matching men and women for marriage, I think was really interesting. He placed a Lonely Heart ad in 1915 in Le Journal newspaper, and it said, Monjour, age 45, single with no family, savings of 4,000 francs, having own home, wishes to marry a lady of a similar age and situation. So for a woman in the middle of World War One with few prospects, this sounds like a fantastic ad to read and then respond to, no? Well, it does. And I don't know how much 4,000 francs is, you know, in terms of a level of wealth back then. But he's advertising, he's got a his own home. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously going to be something that is attractive to somebody who's down on their luck. Mm -hmm. Um, He has money. When you say he's advertising a similar situation, is that also a woman of his age that's single or is it a woman of his age that has similar assets? Of a similar age and situation, I would say similar assets. He does not want someone who has much lower money than he is what it sounds like. He's, you know, he's searching for somebody with money. Yeah, and and so if he's looking for somebody with similar assets, chances are he doesn't have 4,000 francs. Yeah. And so what? now he's using this Lonely Hearts ad to lure somebody who has money. Mm-hmm. So that tells me there still is a financial motive to what he is trying to accomplish. He has just switched from what he was doing prior to the war mm-hmm. with the con jobs with within the business and, and the inventions and everything else mm-hmm. to now he's taken advantage of the situation, the lack of men. And he's reaching out to the most vulnerable, the women that are looking for a man in order to partner up with. And he finds, it sounds like, quite a few of them. And as soon as I heard that he had done this, he had put this Lonely Heart ad in the newspaper, this reminded me, I don't know if you've read a lot about serial killer Belle Gunness, but she did the same thing in America. Belle Gunness was a very well-known, I would argue probably the most well-known female serial killer, certainly in this time period in the early 1900s. And she placed ads looking for, I believe, Norwegian men with lots of money. And she got plenty of them and they would just show up with money and she would eventually kill them, sometimes marry them first. So this is pretty innovative. It sounds like sort of finding someone on the internet now. What would be the equivalent of that? Is that trolling the streets or going to singles clubs? What do people do now to find someone in a similar situation? There's just as many different ways that somebody could find a victim pool. You know, if you're looking for a victim of a certain characteristic, I would say these these online dating apps Mm -hmm. are prime. Where now, you know, I've never done one, but the swipe left, swipe right, 
you're not necessarily paying attention to the physical attributes. You're looking for verbiage or signs in the photographs that, oh, this person has disposable income. Mm -hmm. And then it's now digging into and seeing if you can reach out and somehow establish a connection. But it, it can be done in person. You know, these types of offenders will move around. They can't stay in one location too long. You mm-hmm. know, that's what, what you'll see is they often are, are quite transient. So once they have victimized somebody, they move quickly. They, you know, they hide the assets that they've stolen and then they try to get to a different location. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the points that I want to make is you, you brought up, you know, this female serial killer. Mm-hmm. And this is where you see the difference in the female versus male serial killers. Mm-hmm. When female Females are serial killers. It's either for money, like the Black Widow type killer, mm-hmm. or it's out of vindictiveness. It's anger versus men serial killers. You have the vindictive aspect for sure. And there may be financial motivations, but oftentimes it's sexually motivated. And that is very, very unusual to see a female be a serial killer for sexual motivations. Yeah, and and I've actually spoken to several authors who have covered some really sadistic female killers, but you're right, they seem to be pretty few and far between. But Belle Gunness was next level. She really, she butchered people and she took their money. There seemed to be multiple motives there. Henri's motive seems to be a little clearer. You know, he's asking for people who have money and he received from these Lonely Heart ads that he placed 300 responses to the ad. Wow. So this is what he did. He had a little black book, the good old little black book, and he noted his correspondence with every woman just to keep his story straight. You know, he wrote her name down, what her background was, and then he would clarify to himself the alias he used to her, what he said about his story. So he had a black book which will be a treasure trove for police later on. This just seems silly to me and someone who clearly doesn't think he's going to get caught because, boy, what a book of, literally a book of evidence. No, absolutely. And this is reminding me of a serial killer who I had a role in, in terms of the investigation, which is Joe Naso. Hmm. Joe Naso was found up in Reno. Uh, They did a parole search of his house Mm -hmm. and uh, they found a diary, a rape diary going all the way back into the 1950s, all over the Bay Area, Uh, actually starting out in Rochester, New York, and then out into Oakland. And then what we call the top 10 list, a list of women and girls that he killed. And some of those those uh, people were identified, victims were identified, and he's now on death row in California. You know, but he kept that, and that is a huge treasure trove for the investigation. I mean, that is unreal that somebody would be able to do that, but practically it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're telling so many lies, you have to be able to keep track. And that's what Henri did. And I don't get the impression from reading this story, I don't get the impression that it is kept as a remembrance or what do you call them? You don't call them trophies. You call them trinkets. Souvenirs. Yeah, souvenirs. Sorry, not trinkets. So like we're at Coney Island. No, you're right. Souvenirs. I don't get the impression that it's for, you know, evoking memories. I think it's just a practical thing. So he literally has a little black book. And the first person that he corresponds with from this Lonely Hearts ad is a woman named Celestine Boanison. Celestine was the mistress of a man who had recently been killed at war, which is a story we've heard before. She was the mother of a 19-year-old son who had been born illegitimately, and now he was fighting in the war. She had a huge amount of savings, and this seems like a prime target for Henri. He told her that his name was George Fremier. That was his alias, and that's what he wrote in his little book. He was a manufacturer from the French-Belgian border, and he was courting her, but of course he was also talking to other women. So he had a list of women going. Another woman was named Anna Colum. She was a 39-year-old widow, and she earned 210 francs per month as a typist, which is pretty good during World War I. And there were a lot of women who were also at play, so he is keeping track of all these women and juggling all of them. He wrote about each one of them, everything about their rendezvous to keep you know track of what happened, to notes on their financial circumstances, all in this little black book, which we've already talked about is an excellent piece of evidence 
when you are finally caught. Do you find that with other killers? I know you mentioned one case already. Is it consistent that people keep track of the things that they do and and happen? Do we see a lot of journals? I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, extensive journals like this. You know, Joe Naso's rape diary was quite extensive and quite detailed. You know, another serial killer, noted serial killer that kept a known list was Randy Kraft, Angel of Darkness. So he uh, had a very extensive list in shorthand of his victims. But the notes he was keeping was so were so cryptic that there's a quite a few of those entries that they have not identified what cases those are, who those victims are. And only Randy Kraft knows that, and he's not divulging. What Henri is doing is different. You know, Joe Naso, Randy Kraft, they are keeping sort of a memoir so they can go back and relive right. those crimes. Henri is trying to keep the details straight. And what's interesting to me is, you know, he's reaching out to multiple women at the same time and making up different stories with each woman that he has to keep straight. That tells me he's not sure which of these women are going to get snared into his trap. And so he's juggling multiple potential victims. But by giving them different details... You know, if something were to happen and and authorities were to start digging in, there isn't a consistent pattern of details that authorities can go, aha, you know, look at this is the same person over and over and over again. That's what he's trying to do. And he's using all of these aliases. And remember, he's doing this on the run. They are looking for him actively now. World War I is still happening, but he could be recognized by a local police officer. Who knows? It's still a little bit of a risk. We know that between 1915 and 1920, a total that we know of, of 10 women vanish in a five-year period who have all been associated with Henri. And then one man who is Andre, who was the son of the first victim, that's a lot of bodies to hide. And it seems to me like a pretty big risk because as we'll find out, these are all people who were missed. These are not people living high-risk lives. These are people who their family members are going to come looking for them. But he has to balance this because he does still need people who have money. That's part of his motivation. So it's a risky little demographic he's working in, don't you think? What is any any time that you have somebody whose family is going to miss them at a certain point, if the family is aware that the person is not corresponding with them or seen on the routine that they're used to, then they're going to become concerned and eventually report that to authorities or come looking for them themselves. Um, So in in some ways, if he is targeting women that are closely connected with family that they're associating with physically uh, on a routine basis, that elevates his risk of being caught versus targeting somebody whose family is nowhere near them. Um, And that's where I'm kind of curious, was he, you know, juggling all these women in his black book? And one of the characteristics he was going to use was whether or not they were isolated from the rest of their family. So Mm -hmm. he has a time frame in which to get their assets, do whatever else he's going to do, which I'm still not sure if there's anything else that he's doing with these victims, and then disposing of their bodies, hiding their bodies, and setting an escape route, so to speak, from the trail that might lead to him. He may not physically be moving, but he may be laying down some barriers that would prevent the family or authorities from tracing, you know, the victim's movements to Henri's front door. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. 
And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. I don't know if he has been cross-referencing women to hopefully pick ones specifically who aren't close to their family, but he picked two of the wrong ones because you've got our heroes. And I love to have in true crime stories, I love when women can be the heroes. There are two heroes here who are sisters of two of his victims who don't know each other, these two women. So I'll tell you what ends up happening and how they become connected. So one of the victims, Celestine, who we talked about, her sister, Marie Lacoste, was determined to find out what happened. They missed her. They were a tight-knit family. She started conducting her own informal investigation into this man from the Lonely Heart ad who Celestine had gone with. And eventually, she reached out to the mayor of the town where Henri was living and where her sister was last seen and begged him to investigate the man. And he shrugged her off, essentially saying, it's none of my business. Love affairs are not something I want to be involved with, particularly if they involve men. We're not going to dig into somebody's private life. But he did do one thing. He put Celestine's sister Marie in touch with another woman, Victorine Palais. And Victorine was the sister of another victim who was Anna Cullum. And she had separately reached out to the mayor around suspicions around her sister's suitor also. So you've got two victims out of 11 whose two sisters are looking for them. And now the mayor of the town or the village where Henri has been in the countryside of France is connecting these two women and they start telling stories and realize that their sisters were involved with the same man with different names Do you know of a case where victims or, you know, survivors have worked together or the families of survivors have worked together to try to piece together what happened, even if it's after the perpetrator has been caught? Well, in terms of working together, you know, most notably is is Golden State Killer, Mm -hmm. where prior to the case being solved, there were several family members. Debbie Domingo, who was the daughter of Sherry Domingo, who had been killed by the Golden State Killer. Then you have Michelle Cruz, who is the sister of Janelle Cruz, the Golden State Killer's last known victim. Mm -hmm. They were independently wanting to figure out who killed their loved one. Uh, Debbie had even reached out to me well before the case was solved, wanting to introduce herself to me, also wanting to pick my brain in terms of, you know, where I was going with my investigation. And I shared information with her that the prime agency over her mother's case had never shared with her, including some photos from inside the house, not including, you know, photos of of the victims, but just to see if that would spark a memory. You know, now she had never seen photos from inside the house and had never been inside the house after the homicide occurred. And then ultimately, those two pair up along with a survivor of Joe D'Angelo, a rape victim, uh, Jane Carson. And they're all kind of working together. So I have seen that. I was trying to think of other cases out there, and at least within the cases that I have personal uh, knowledge of, I think that's the only time I've seen it. On the media side, now that I'm in the true crime genre, I've Mm -hmm. I've seen that a little bit. I just can't necessarily divulge that information right now. All right. Well, that's very mysterious, Paul. Oh, great. (laughs) I can't wait to hear more at some point when you can't divulge information. So here's what happens. These two sisters begin to work together, and they are convinced that this is the same man who has been courting their two sisters who have now been missing for quite a while. I want to make an observation. So here... You have, you know, one of the sisters goes to the mayor and he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Oh, but by the way, there's this other sister of a missing woman. Right. She's been complaining too. <laughs> and so the mayor, the mayor should be going, hold on. I've got two women that are now looking for the same guy yep. of two missing women. 
when is he getting law enforcement involved as opposed to, no, this isn't my problem. He's not doing a very good job. And I think that the mayor is probably not thinking this is a killer. I think that he's thinking this is a womanizer and I'm not going to contribute to the humiliation of one of my citizens who is, you know, in town. He didn't want to get involved, but he had heard complaints from the other sister. So what is so interesting and tells you the size of France in this time period or the luck is one of the sisters is in Paris and she actually spots him. She spots Henri and He's on a Paris street. And remember, he's a fugitive, so police have no problem bringing him in. She rushes over. She finds a police officer nearby. He is quickly arrested at a minimum because he skipped out on a four-year prison sentence, hard labor sentence for defrauding investors. And when he is taken in, he's in his apartment and he's got the little black book in the apartment. He tries to throw it out the window. And of course, it's confiscated by police. Criminals are so silly to me sometimes. I just thought he just tried to throw out this material and now they've got a whole book full of names and information of potential victims that's still not that much. Right now, you just have rumors and a sleazy guy who sleeps around a lot, right, at this point. It all depends on what's inside this book. You know, his his actions of trying to throw the book out the window, all that did is draw law enforcement's attention to this as being, okay, this is something we need to pay attention to. Right. He probably could have secreted it in a different way, in a less, in a more subtle way. And they may have even overlooked it entirely. I doubt if they're doing like a, a massive search of his residence. Well, what I would have said if I were him was, I'm married. I don't need my wife knowing that I have a little black book full of women's names and what they were like in bed and what their financial situation was. So there's still not very much evidence, just the suspicion of two women who I can almost guarantee you have been labeled as hysterical in, you know, 1920, 1919, France, who are trying to alert authorities that their two sisters are missing when authorities don't appear to be that concerned. They are, however, concerned about someone who was convicted of a crime who was supposed to be working in a prison yard who had gone missing. So they take him because of that. So moving forward, they do an extensive investigation-ish. And when I say ish, that means I think they missed quite a few things. What they did find for incriminating evidence was lots of ID cards from various women who had gone missing. There were stolen items like jewelry and clothing and furniture. The little black book, they could match up to some of these IDs, but they haven't found any bodies. No signs of murder. And essentially, he could have said, he wasn't talking, but he could have said, listen, I stole all of this stuff and a thief is a thief, but I'm not a killer. So they haven't, at this point in the investigation, found anything that can substantiate murder charges just yet. So the black book, he's not putting entries. I killed Celestine or, you know, okay. So in essence, it is just his, like almost a dating type of entry. Yep. But he has these women's IDs. Yep. That's huge. You have these other items, the jewelry, the dresses and stuff. But those IDs, those are something that these women aren't just going to leave behind. So that right there is where, you know, the investigators, the hair on their back and the necks must be going up, going, these women probably met with foul play. Yeah. And the reason he's keeping those IDs is in all likelihood as a souvenir, unless he is somehow using those IDs in order to continue to draw from, you know, the financial institutions, you know, getting money from their accounts or however it worked back in the day. Right. And one of the things that they did was they did do searches, of course, of his family home where his wife, who had been abandoned, and his four children were. He had a place in the country where he had been staying where most of these women had visited. They did a search. They did not find bodies of these women. They did find something that is also disturbing, though. They found the bodies of three dogs and one cat who were all pets of the victims, their family said. And he at first denied any involvement of the murders of the women. So he denied all involvement of the murders. 
but he admitted that he had strangled these animals to death. Oh. Don't ask me why. I have no idea why. I mean, a dog is going to alert people if their owner, if a woman is being threatened, but a cat? Is this all sadistic or do you think it's practical or, or what? Well, there, there is a practical aspect, of course. You know, once he is done with the pet's owners, he's getting rid of the pets. But the method that he's killing them is, is interesting. Strangulation. I start to think, okay, is this somebody at a younger age was also involved with uh, cruelty to animals? Yeah. For me, everybody's heard of the serial killer triad. Cruelty to animals, fire setting, bedwetting. I put zero weight on bedwetting. Fire setting, I put some weight on. Yeah. But the number one indicator is, is if somebody's willing to torture and kill an animal, they're just one step away from doing that to a human. Yeah. So now he is manually, he is strangling these dogs and a cat. I go back into his past as a teenager. Was he doing that? Now I start wondering, okay, maybe these women... They, they are being lured, of course, for their financial assets because he is a con man. Mm -hmm. He's a financially motivated criminal. But he may also have a sexual motivation. He may have a predatory component to him. So this is where I'm very curious, as you tell me more, that did they, did they find any of their bodies? Do we have any indication on what he did to these women? Well, let's talk about what his neighbors said. So, as a reminder, he was nicknamed the Bluebeard of Gone Bay because that's where he lived, was this village or town in France in the countryside. And the police went to talk to his neighbors in Gone Bay, and there were several things that they were alerted about. One was that there were a lot of complaints about bad-smelling smoke coming from his chimneys. I'm not sure fire is a great way to dispose of a body. No, you know, a lot of people may assume that the average house fire, let's say in a fireplace, is going to do like what a crematorium will do. And it's not even close. So there is often a lot of the body that remains after the fire. So there has to be a lot more work done in order to truly get rid of the body. Plus, in his situation, you know, now you are sending this smoke out that is being distributed into the neighborhood. So that smell is alerting the neighbors, you know, Henri, the weird guy living next door is doing something not normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes in current day, law enforcement is called to locations because of weird smells or the smell of death or the neighbor is doing something odd in the middle of the night. And there are a couple of more odd things that are happening. The neighbors in this village said that there were women who were coming but not leaving the property, which I think they thought was odd. And they go back, the police, because they're gathering all this information and Henri is in jail awaiting whatever is going to happen to him next. The police go back out to the country home after they've interviewed the neighbors and do a more thorough search and they find pieces of women's clothing as well as ashes underneath a pile of leaves near the garden. And they eventually determine that there's a, a substance there that contains human bone fragments and teeth. So, of course, we don't have DNA evidence or DNA testing during this time period. They were certain that these were human remains, and they were certain that he had disposed of the human remains in the oven. And you and I, we just finished talking about, you know, using fire and ovens. And you and I have talked about another case where, you know, somebody was burned in an oven. And I wanted to make sure to show you, in this case, the size of an oven, because I know that it does make a difference because they did enter it into evidence. So this is the oven right here that we're working with this photo, which looks fairly large. I'll go up a little bit so that you can see it in the context. See it on the right here? Yeah, it's just a typical oven, but we're talking about 11 people. So I don't think he was able to dispose of all of those remains in this particular oven. Well, he's working in all likelihood with one victim's body at a time. Yeah. He, you know, in all likelihood is having to dismember the victims and then, you know, incinerating the victims in the oven. This took some time. 
So he's, he, you know, he was diligent. If all 11 victims all were disposed of in this method, that was a lot of time. Yeah, they really didn't find many remains. They were certain that there were human remains, but Henri is not confessing. It's not happening. In fact, when he appears in court, he's very, very arrogant. He turns this into a circus. He is charged with 11 counts of murder based on those remains, based on, frankly, the families who came forward and said, my sister's missing and I know that she was involved or my my daughter was missing. I know she was involved with this particular man. So they charged him with 11 counts of murder and 37 counts of theft and fraud based on the material that they found there. I think it was haphazard at best. Now, do you know, did they find all 11 women's IDs at his place or just some of them? I believe some of them. I think that they found enough items to constitute charging him with 11 counts. But I'll tell you at the end of this, I think there are many, many more victims. I just, I'm not sure where he hid them because I just don't think he would have been able to dispose Although, I don't know, five years, these people all went missing from 1915 to 1920. It's a long time. You have to be diligent, but anybody complaining about foul-smelling smoke just, I think, would have been complaining for, you can imagine, years of bad-smelling smoke as a neighbor that something wouldn't have changed. Yeah, and, you know, something that struck me, you, you mentioned that he had this country property. Right. Did he have any animals nearby, you know, either on his property or on the neighbor's properties, like pigs, hogs? No, but get Bell Gunness did. <laughs> I think that might be where you're heading. Yeah, no, no animals that I know of, but it was a country estate, so who knows? Mm-hmm. It would have made sense for him to have some animals, chickens or something to cultivate to be able to eat, I would assume, but I don't know anything about for sure. Yeah, I would imagine that over the course of five years with 11 victims, his method of body disposal probably evolved and changed. And these offenders, I've seen somewhat of a pattern, and this is a loose pattern with cases I'm familiar with, where early on, they will be much more meticulous and spend a lot more time disposing of the body because this is when they're paranoid, right? And they're going to, you know, spend all that time, you know, dismembering, putting them in the oven, each piece is ground up, and then they just scatter, you know, what remains across the, the landscape. Yeah. But then some of these offenders will go, God, that's a lot of work, you know, and I'm getting away with this. Nobody's ever going to know. And now maybe the victim's bodies are just taken out into the countryside and and dumped whole, Uh, you know, just being a surface deposit. So you see this kind of evolution almost away from being good at it, you know, to being just haphazard. And I'm wondering, you know, in this day and age, he may have just resorted after some of the victims, he's taken all this time to dismember and burn up and scatter what remains to where now he's just taking maybe dismembered body parts and scattering them across the countryside as he's, you know, in a horse-drawn carriage or in a some sort of vehicle. Yep. Or, you know, if you have, as what I was getting at earlier, if you do have, uh, you know, a hog farm nearby, you're th- throwing body parts back there and they will consume those body parts, bone and all. Well, and you're looking at the times and the place and the context in history. As the prosecutors are building this case, they are saying some pretty interesting things. I think are really creepy and incriminating, including the fact that Henri, when he would buy tickets, train tickets, for he and these women to go to the village where his country house was, he would buy himself a round-trip ticket, but... Not the women. Yeah. (laughs) One-way ticket. Don't laugh at that, Paul. One-way ticket. I mean, good Lord. I I don't know if they were unaware of that, but that's pretty damning, I would think. Yet, the prosecutors were still nervous about this case because it was largely circumstantial. They were having a problem placing any of the remains with the specific women, and he was not confessing. He was not saying a word, and he had an excellent defense team. They were saying that he was dismissive of the women who were all testifying against him. He was calling them cackling hens, saying, you absolutely have no evidence. His defense team was saying the prosecutors, even though they had thousands of pages documenting all of the circumstantial evidence, there's ashes, there's clothing fragments, neighbors saying there's a stinky smell, even they had the oven that they believe he used to burn the body. It's still just not a lot of 
hard evidence aside from these bits of remains. And it doesn't help that he is sneering and very arrogant in court. And he had a habit of mocking women in the audience. So he sounds like a terrible person and one that sounds like he could actually get away with this. You know, once he's caught, of course, now he's assessing the actions that he took with these victims. And it sounds like he's very confident that he hid them and what he did to them very well. Uh, So now there's that ego aspect to him. Now that ego is emerging out of his personality there in court, and that's going to play against him in terms of what the jurors, how they're assessing his personality. In many ways, it sounds like he's coming off as a narcissist, and, and this is often a characteristic of somebody who is a psychopath. Well, I'll tell you, his lawyers did something that I think is fairly smart. They said, Listen, we don't know what happened to these women. There are a host of things that could have happened. Henri has hinted that maybe he sold them off as sex slaves or in sex trafficking, which sounds terrible, but they're saying there are a host of reasons why these women aren't around. And what you don't want to do is send someone to the guillotine, have them have their head chopped off, and then have these women all walk through the doors later on and then you've executed an innocent man. So it's the the corpus delecti. Yeah, there's part of that. But the prosecutor's strategy is going to, you know, remain on the, the core of the circumstantial evidence. You know, some of these women's IDs that he lured through this Lonely Hearts ad uh, were found on his premises. He's got this black book diary of his communications with them. He's still possessing their dresses and jewelry inside his house. And you have human remains that are present on his property. Yep. You know, and, and, and back in the day, they couldn't associate those human remains with any of the victims conclusively. But when you start taking a look at the totality of the circumstances, most certainly some of these women met with foul play at his hands. Yep. You know, now, could you prove all 11 women in this day and age? Probably not. But back then, it was typical for them to have to deal with a circumstantial case. Right. And you're right about all of that. And despite his dismissive behavior in court, despite the fact that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and no smoking gun, so to speak, he is found guilty on all charges, all 11 murders, and he is sentenced to death through the guillotine, which is just terrible to even think about. Here's what I want to talk to you a little bit about without being too judgy on my end. So let me tell you what the audience who came, the spectators who came, the fans of Henri Landru did. There were 4,000 pieces of fan mail to him, 800 marriage proposals. Terrible. A-listers came, sat there, watched the trial. I continue to not understand that. And this is the evidence I present to people all the time that this fervor that we say we have that's all of a sudden new over true crime is not new. 800 marriage proposals to this disgusting serial killer who preyed on women. No, and and times haven't changed. Uh, no. Richard Ramirez, you know, the, the Night Stalker was receiving the same type of uh, fan mail. This is something that is seen over and over again. So it just shows that even though the era has changed, we as humans have not. No. This happened in November of 1921, and there were a huge amount of people who wanted to get into this trial, all A-listers, actors, authors, princesses wanted to see this guy. What do you think it is? Is it as stupid as the bad boy? Is it that he's a freak of nature and we don't understand how somebody could do this and still be seemingly normal? Do you think that's it? Because you don't see this kind of a a lineup of people sitting in a galley at a normal, you know, humdrum murder trial. I think different people have different motivations. There's going to be individuals just because of the notoriety of this case. I imagine it was huge in the press. And so now they gravitate towards that case. They want to be a part of history, just even Mm. present to see him in person. There's that aspect. These celebrities, some of them may have that part of it, but also it's being seen. You know, it's just kind of, here I am. I want just to further my 
my PR aspect, those individuals, these women that are doing the marriage proposals, the bad boy for sure is, I think, some of it. But I'm thinking in particular of one serial killer who ended up marrying a local school teacher after he was convicted of killing three women. I have copies of the letters she wrote to the warden where he was housed, having to explain that she understood each of the crimes that he had been convicted of, but that she still wanted to marry him. And it was obvious reading the letters as well as looking into her that she suffered from extreme self-esteem issues. Hmm. And I saw this as almost a safe relationship for her. You know, somebody that was corresponding with her that she met face to face, but there was still that distance. He's in prison. Yeah. It was like, oh, you know, this is somebody who's going, this is pretty much probably the only relationship I can get. And even though as, as the crimes he was convicted of is, is horrifying, um, there was a safety because he's separated from her. And, and she just needed that relationship to help fulfill herself. Oof. Well, he is executed in 1922. His severed head was memorialized in an exhibit at the Museum of Death in Hollywood. And the oven, where a lot of this allegedly took place, where he disposed of these bodies, went to a wax museum in Paris before it was purchased by a wealthy Frenchman. Why you would buy this, I have no idea. And I think it's disgusting. It's macabre. It's macabre. And this man is now legendary. He's been embedded into the history of death in France and is very well known. Two pieces of information I like about this case. Number one is that these two women, these two sisters were fierce advocates for their sisters. And he might not have been caught had they not continually gone and knocked on the mayor's door and said, I don't care what you think, this needs to be taken care of. So you've got these two women who I think are the heroes. And then you have shoddy police work. The journalist that I mentioned to you, the more modern day journalist, said that when police looked through Henri's garage, they found records that led them to believe that it was many, many more than 11 victims. They were saying there was evidence of up to 72 people who he encountered in one way or the other during this time period who, you know, they could only identify 11 that they thought had gone missing, including the young man. So this is a case of somebody who might have killed many more people than he was executed for. And many of those people killed were possibly before he ever did that prison stint, before he was released, right? Mm -hmm. Because of World War One, Right. I mean, he's in his mid-40s. So he's operating as a con man. He's using his skill sets as a con man to lure women. I believe, based on what you've told me, is even though part of his motivation with these women is their financial assets, I think his primary motivation is he was a true serial killer. And he's probably either torturing them like a sexual sadist or somehow other, otherwise, you know, brutalizing them before he kills them in, in a sexual manner. And that journalist I spoke of agrees with you. He really believes that there's a lot more to this than financial because he could have attracted women who had many more finances and he didn't. Let me ask you one last question that really is not necessary to get a conviction and not necessary to do a story, but something I'm curious about. We don't know how any of these people died. Let's just assume that that we're right, that at least 11 people died on that property in that village in the countryside of France. Did the fact that they could prove that he had strangled these animals lead you to believe that that's probably what happened with the women or the men that he had dispatched also? Likely? Yes. Okay. What he's doing to the animals, he's not cutting them up, you know, like he's not taking a knife and torturing them and, and stabbing them. He's not using a gun. What he's doing to the animals is the reason he's strangling is that is what he likes to do. And so if he is killing these women in a fantasy-motivated crime, he's going to do what he likes to do. And so those animals are insight into his fantasy. So I do think that in all likelihood, he has sexually assaulted these women and killed them through strangulation. And what a terrible ending for women who were just looking for companionship and support. 
that's what we're assuming and encountering this man who just doesn't seem like he was good from the very beginning. And then, of course, he's left behind a wife and four children, and there's still chaos from the war. So I'm sorry to give you such a sad, depressing story. Not that any of our stories are lighthearted on this show on your birthday, but again, just repeating through history, vulnerable victims, vulnerable women, survivors, family members trying to help, just all of it reverberates through history with us. And it underscores that these offenders are very good at identifying certain vulnerabilities that they can exploit. And that's what Henri did. He took advantage of the times. He took advantage of these women, these widows, and was intelligent and sophisticated enough to convince them that he was relationship worthy. Mm -hmm. In many ways, he is a true, like, wolf in sheep's clothing. That's a good description. Well, I predict we will have many more wolves in sheep's clothing to come. And I look forward to bringing you another case next week. I hope you have a wonderful birthday. I hope I haven't been too much of a Debbie Downer for you <laughs> with this case. But boy, I like cases that make make you think. And, and this really does. It's, it's so interesting to me when we bring up a story and then I can just pick through my brain, my little vault of all crimes that I have studied throughout history. And it's just like, one after the other. They feel so similar because we are all so similar throughout history. So thank you for letting me remind myself of uh, some other really important cases too. Yeah, and you're not a Debbie Downer for me. This is the world I live in (laughs) and you just keep them coming. (laughs) All right, I will. I'll see you next week. Have a great day. Thank you. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.